Welcome to the Deep Bible Studies Podcast, where we discover, explore, examine, and practice the Word of God. I'm your host, Claudia Rivera Guevarez, and can I just say how excited I am that we have come to the conclusion of our first week concluding with John 2. I'm so proud of everyone who has been following up and been reading John 2 for themselves prayerfully and following along with the podcast for greater for commentary. This makes me so excited and I am praying for all of you who are following along and reading the word of God for yourselves and praying that the Lord might teach you that this theology might lead you to praise of him so today like i said we're going to be reading john 2 13 through 25 jesus cleanses the temple the passover of the jews was at hand and jesus went up to jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus knows what man is. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Let's break this down. So after a brief stay in Capernaum, and we see this in John 2.12, Jesus went to Jerusalem to attend the Passover feast. There he was going to begin his public ministry and he was going to do it precisely in the house of his father the temple. Remember that when his mother suggested that he begin to manifest himself as the Messiah at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, he replied that his hour had not yet come. And for that reason, the miracle that he performed there, it was done with all possible discretion. The Lord knew that the place where his public manifestation should begin was the temple, because this was what the prophet had announced in Malachi 3.1. Behold, I am sending my messenger who will prepare the way before me, and the Lord will come suddenly to his temple. As we have already considered in the first part of the gospel, John the Baptist came as God's messenger who was to prepare the way before him. After this, the Lord himself was to appear in the midst of his people, and the indicated place was the temple. This event took place in the holiest site in Israel and at the most solemn time of year when pilgrims flocked to Jerusalem to celebrate the holidays. This portion of the Bible interpreted in light of Psalm 69.9 reinforces the disciples' conviction that Jesus was really the Messiah. Jesus's indignation and cleansing of the temple reveals who he is, the promised Messiah and the Son of God. His passion for awe and reverence and his power of the resurrection all reveal his deity. Only God deserves reverence and only God has the power to resurrect. We will see Christ's deity in the cleansing of the temple where he shows his passion for pure reverence which God alone can truly exercise his right to worship him. So the first verse in this section says, 
The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Passover celebrates and recognizes the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. This is found in the book of Exodus. God commanded the Israelites to commemorate this important event every year on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Abib, later called Nisan. Um, and we see this in Exodus 12, 42 and Leviticus 23, 5. The word Passover comes from a Hebrew term, passage, that means to overlook. It refers to how Jehovah protected the Israelites from the plague that killed all the firstborn in Egypt. And we see this in Exodus 12, 27 and 13, 15. So the next verse says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers that were sitting there. So for a little bit of context regarding verse 14, when God commanded the Israelites to go before the Lord each year to celebrate the Passover feast, he further told them that they should not come empty-handed. And we see this in Deuteronomy 16, 16. So for the different sacrifices that were offered in those days, they had to bring the appropriate animals or it was difficult for them to travel far with them or they could just also buy them right there in Jerusalem. In the end, it was honestly just much more convenient for them to buy the animals in the market that the priests controlled in the temple because it's guaranteed that the animals had already been examined by them and declared fit for sacrifices. Of course, a lot of them would bring their own animals, but they were liable to be rejected by the priest. So to save themselves annoyance, it was best for them to just buy it right there. But the fact that the temple leaders decided to set up a cattle market in the temple grounds to cater for the pilgrims needs was deeply outraged to the Lord. A market was surely necessary since we have already indicated many Israelites would find it impossible to bring their animals if they traveled from afar. But there was room for such market in many other places in the city. But the reason why the priests had it placed within the temple was to create a commercial benefit that they obtained and with it by being within the territory where they could exercise their authority. It was clear that they wanted to do good deal with the desire of people to worship God. All this highlights how corrupt Judaism was in those days. What concept did they have of God when in order to obtain a benefit for themselves, they did not mind filling the temple with bad smells and filth? What impression did Jesus receive when he entered his father's house and found that it had been turned into a marketplace where cattlemen and pilgrims argued heatedly about animal prices? In view of all of this, the indignation that the Lord manifested at the situation was more than reasonable. John MacArthur explains, quote, with such a large group of travelers and because of the seasonal nature of the celebration, both the animal dealers and the money changers exploited the situation for monetary gain. Religion had become crass and materialistic. Unquote. Honestly, reading that quote, it reminds me a lot of today, how religion has become very crass and materialistic, but in the context of this, it's talking about Passover. But just a thought. Anyways, the next verse says, And making a whip of cords, he drove all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus is biblically angry at sin against his father. The temple is meant to be kept holy, and as he said, they turned it into a house of trades, which also makes it sound like a house of gamble or profit. When God's holiness and worship of him are at stake, or was at stake, Jesus took fast and furious action against it. These actions were not brutal or aggressive, or the Roman troops would have intervened, but they didn't. Rather, they were actions to fulfill Malachi 3, 
1 through 3. Verse 16 says, And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This was a strong demand for God's holiness. Demands for holiness in worship. So now let's stop for a second and define holiness because I know I've said it in most of the episodes, but I think it's finally the time for us to define this word. So let's go to Isaiah 6, 1 through 7 that says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. You guys, how beautiful is this passage? I got tears just reading it to you guys. But the threefold repetition, holy, 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 emphasizes God's separateness from an independence of his fallen creation. John MacArthur states, The earth is the worldwide display of his immeasurable glory, perfections, and attributes as seen in creation, unquote. And so we see in this very passage, Isaiah's repentance and brokenness for his own sin, unworthiness which deserved judgment, for how could he stand before such a holy God, such a separate God, sovereign God? If his lips are unclean, that means that so is his heart. And yet God prepared him for his cleansing and his commission through his repentance. That hot coal is God's own purifying work. Simply, repentance is painful when it's genuine, and that's true. Yet, the coal was not salvation. So doesn't this further magnify Christ's work on the cross even more? He paid for our condemnation. He credited his righteousness to us and paid for our depravity by bearing the full wrath of God, which he satisfied. He died as if he was the man with unclean lips, though he never did any sin. He bore ours. And he resurrected and defeated death as a one true God. God is over death. Moving on, verse 17 says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So this is from Psalm 69.9, and it says, For zeal for your house will has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This just means Jesus would not tolerate any sort of irreverence towards God. So the next verse says, So the Jews said to him, what signs do you show us for doing these things? So they were meaning a miracle, um, a sign, a miracle in command. It was asked of him to show his authority in doing these things. In these next couple of verses, we will see Jesus's deity demonstrated through his power over resurrection, a right only God has. 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus often spoke in parables so that his true disciples would understand, but people consumed with unbelief wouldn't. What this specific short parable means is that through Christ's death and resurrection, worship in Jerusalem temple would be destroyed, but reinstituted in the hearts of those who Christ built into a spiritual temple, the church. Not just the building, but those truly in Christ, the body of Christ who are being conformed into his image. This is where we see true genuine worship, where the true temple is and God's regenerated people are. And I think the way we test ourselves if we truly are in the body of Christ is through the constant growing in his grace as we've talked about, but also the constant repentance. I mean, I don't think I've gone a day without being so broken over my sin, being so repentant over my sin because the Holy Spirit makes it so apparent. And yet I have not gone a day where the Holy Spirit has not made it even more apparent, the atoning work of the cross. And you remain in Christ, you see. It's like the Lord will not let you get off of his path. So truly be tested with the scripture from Isaiah 6. Is the man with unclean lips, is that truly a thing that breaks you every day? And is the cross a work that you ponder upon in thinking of and in being convicted over and in awe and reverence towards his beauty, knowing that there is nothing at all that you could have done for that and yet Christ still did it so that you might be reconciled to God and therefore that leads you to reading further into his word. And again, I'm not saying this all happens in a day, not at all. Sanctification is a slow everyday process, but you grow and remain in the Lord. So I went a little bit off on a tangent there, but I don't know, I I felt like I needed to say that. Uh, But verse 20 through 22 say, The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So I love that the word of God interprets itself. (laughs) The meaning is provided right here. All we do is read it, listen, and truly believe in it. God reveals to us through his own word. There is no need for special revelation. It is in his word. Verse 22 then says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In response to the request that the Jews made to Jesus for a sign, he pointed them to the cross and the resurrection. And this is still the answer that God gives to anyone who demands a sign, the cross and the resurrection of Christ. There can be no other sign greater than this. And what was the response to the signal? Well, over time, the disciples who kept remembering these words of Jesus without understanding them, when they saw his death and his resurrection, suddenly everything began to fit perfectly in their minds and they realized that this was precisely what he had announced to them. So they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. And we see this in John 2.22. In the contrary, the rebellious Jews changed what Jesus said and used it as evidence against him when he was being tried by the Sanhedrin. And when later he was on the cross, they used it again to ridicule and mock him. So we're going to finish with the last section, which is called Jesus Knows What Is In Man. Verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the many signs that he was doing. 
So because of the many signs, many came to believe in him, basically, is what this verse says itself. Um, the next verse says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. Jesus looked for genuine conversion and conviction, rather than seeking enthusiasm or miracles. I mean, in our day and age, we can know this as, quote-unquote, a spiritual high. We get emotional and excited for what Jesus can do, but it withers and it is plucked away by the struggles of life. The seeds, the gospel being planted in our hearts and what that looks like for different hearts. There is no true conviction for those people or commitment or repentance or counting the cost of truly believing the gospel. And sadly, this is a lot of what the American church looks like today. Spiritual high enthusiasm, sing the songs, wear the t-shirts. But where is the true conviction? Where is preaching the gospel to the lost? It's hard, but it's possible. And yet we don't see that. So the last verse says, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Only God truly knows the hearts of men. And this passage shows that belief in his name is not merely knowledge, perfection, or plain belief of who he truly is. I mean, even Satan and demons know and believe who Jesus is. No true belief is apart from brokenness over sin, wholehearted commitment of one's life as Jesus' disciple. You can find more information on our website, www.deepbiblestudies.com, where you will also find the calendar to go along with the book that we will be studying. You can also find us on Instagram, at Deep Bible Studies, and Facebook, where you can know every single time we post a new podcast. Also, we have an email, contact at deepbiblestudies.com, where you can ask us any questions and we will be sure to get back to you. I hope you have a wonderful day and see you next time.